Welcome to the Float Your Boat podcast about how everyday people created their road to success. The highs, the lows, pitfalls and potholes and how they overcame it all. And now, here are your hosts. Welcome to another episode of Float Your Boat. My name is George Sabados and... I'm Brett Pattinson. Welcome listeners. Now today, before we begin our interview, I just have to let ev- everyone know that uh, it will be a telephone interview. Hook up. Telephone hookup. LinkedIn phoner. Hookups. I prefer not to use that term because it used to mean something completely different when I was a teenager. Silence is golden, George. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I want to ask you, Brett, I just wanted to, um, you know, cover off on a um, philosophical question. Can't help myself. I'm a little bit Greek, so therefore philosophy runs in the blood. But the question is, does a, does an environment shape the person or can a person shape their environment? What's your belief? I think both. Really? Hmm. Well, it's interesting because uh, some of the most successful people I've met in, in my life um, came from pretty poor environments. In fact, below working class, abject from abject poverty. They, they went to the worst schools barely made it to to 10th grade in in high school and and yet they were able to forge a very successful career for themselves and become mega wealthy and um hugely successful in the world of business um you know i've got um several several people i can i can think of off off the top of my my head um so for me it was a case of there's always some truth in a saying and the saying that that uh, came up for me was that uh, you know cream always rises no matter where you put it, it'll always rise. What do you think? Well, you know, if you think about just the few interviews we've done, the last three or four, mm. we've had that situation on a number of time, uh, mm. occasions. Mm. Mm. Uh, Joy Smithers, she's had a tough upbringing. Um, Lena Barrage, do you remember Lena? Yes, I she do. She had a, a tough upbringing. Um, and a tough life, mm. not necessarily because of her parents or it was more circumstance than other. Um, but it seems to me that you're right, that um, sometimes people that are that challenged just seem to be able to break through. Maybe it's a determination thing to to claw their way out of that situation. Yeah. Yeah. There's no doubt that human beings are uh, amazing creatures and they're capable of anything they set their mind to. Um, And the people that, and in some ways, that's the reason why we're here, right? We're here to explore people who have risen beyond the setbacks that they've had in their lives and overcome challenges and become the people that they are. And they're creating real change in in their own small way. Yeah, and I think, and I think that every person has their challenges. Oh, we all do. Even if they come from a privileged background, mm. oftentimes um, over my years in business, especially, I've met people that have had really privileged backgrounds that have been really challenged in life. Mm. Um, mm. So, float your boat's all about that, really. That's right. And, so, today, and today's no different. Today's no different. So, I, I just wanted to um, tell our listeners a little bit about about the person we, we're going to interview. Her name is Re- Renee McBride, and, and uh, on the face of it, Brett, she was a typical girl with a typical upbringing. She really, she went to school, she had a working mum, she had loving grandparents. 
she went on to university and she majored in community welfare and has worked in the community services sector for the past 15 years or so. Currently, she works in child protection for the Northern, Northern Territory government. She, you know, she has a husband, she has three kids, etc., etc. Hmm. Typical life, right? Hmm. Typical, average, normal life, you'd but, think. But behind that, there's a real story, a really tough story. That's right. Um, Renee uh, has a book called House of Lies, The House of Lies, mm. and it's about a secret that I guess we should let her tell the secret. I guess so. We don't want to blow it too uh, soon. But it's a great story, and I think you're in for a great, um, a great journey today. And I think folks. this is a prime example of how, how a person can overcome their environment. Without a doubt. And I spoke to Renee the other day, pre the interview. We're, we're doing a phoner today, and she sounds delightful. Oh, unaffected, good. right? And moving on with her life. But there is this dark secret. Well, let's get her on. Okay. Hi, Renee. Can you hear me now? Sure can. Yep. Great. Wow, Renee, this is this is really good. George, George, can you hear Renee? I I can. This is really exciting. We've never done a uh, three-way, for want of a better term. <laughs> we should get our terminology right, Brett, because people can get confused. <laughs> well, good to be a part of your first three-way. <laughs> so so welcome, Renee. You're on, we're now, we're now online and. Um, okay. You don't have to be serious because we're never serious. No. I'm, sure, I'm sure the interview might, we might have moments, but generally we try to be pretty lighthearted. Well, look, Renee, you work in the Northern Territory and, uh, you know, given the work that you're doing up there, you need, I, I'm guessing you have a really good sense of humour. I do, and my husband also is a stand-up comedian, so I have to because I'm often the brunt of his uh, <laughs> Your husband is a stand-up comedian. Yeah. <laughs> That's really? Amazing. That's fantastic. Yeah. So we'll have to get him on the show. Oh, yeah, get him. He'd love that. <laughs> he's, he's always trying to write online media stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a little bit about how, how you grew up as a child. Well, I think, you know, in the early years, you just don't really notice a lot that's different about yourself. Children are pretty innocent. So I kind of just was ticking along, spending a lot of time with my grandparents like, um, and, and my mum pretty much. And I knew I didn't have a, my dad around. But um, when I was six, I did speak to him on the phone when I was at my grandparents. And when I was six, one phone call just took a, a major turn and um, no one was kind of prepared for it. Least of all me, I, I thought my dad had worked at Cottage Cordial. And in that phone conversation, um, one Saturday night, he told me he was actually in jail um, serving <laughs> a, a double life sentence uh, for murder. So, yeah, so that wow. was kind of a big... That was big, a big leap. Uh, big shock, yeah, yeah. And I was just really devastated that he didn't work for Cotty's Cordial because I had built up this whole um, fascination about... I loved the ads back in the day. There was that really catchy jingle and all of those things. So I didn't kind of get the full gravity of the situation, but it certainly set my um, life on a, a different course from then on. So, if you don't mind me asking, do you know? Uh, so, what was he? What was the circumstance around the the conviction? His conviction. Well, that kind of took me a whole lot. Yeah. <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> I um I 
kind of had lots of, and obviously at the age of six, I was kind of fed. Once the once the grown ups in my life knew that I'd gotten, you know, this information, they really tried to dull it down or give me a version and um, of you know that could make it, I suppose, as palatable as possible for a six year old. Yeah, um, for sure. And so the version of. Um, kind of the story behind it kept changing as I was getting older and I would get little bits of information and, um, you know, snippets here and there about about the background. But I guess I got most of the background when I was a, a teenager and I, and I found out I could actually look up all of the articles and things like that um, by myself. So um, then I kind of could do a lot of research about what had happened, um, and and I really saw it kind of play out, I guess, um, before me in black and white with mm. the newspaper um, clippings and articles and and front page stories, which was yeah pretty pretty big for a fifteen sixteen year old. Well, that was that was when you were fifteen sixteen, you were able to map out exactly what your dad did. But yeah. but going back to reflecting back on when you were six. Mm. Um, would you say that it was fair and appropriate for those people around you to have hidden that from you, the full extent of what your dad had done? I think it's just very tricky. And, yeah, now that I, now that I have kids of my own, I often think about that. I just don't think I should have had that information at the time, um, you know, because I was so, so young. Um, and probably even more than the information was just the weight of having to keep it a secret. So it was really drilled into me that if you tell anyone about this, people won't like you, um, right. and you won't you won't um, be able to function at school. No one will talk to you. You'll have no friends, and um, and it's something that we should all carry as a really big shameful secret. Um, and certainly that's what. The rest, like my mum and and um, my grandmother, did at the time too. So I kind of just was the third generation to carry um, this kind of secret. So we had a little club going. Right. <laughs> yeah. I'm just trying to set the context, though, uh, Renee. Uh, I take it that your mum was actually married to your dad. Yeah. Well, right. again, I didn't find that out until much later. So at the time. Um, when I was six, they weren't together, and she wasn't aware that I was um, talking to him on the phone. So um, my grandmother had kind of led that relationship um, and, and yeah, sort of facilitated the relationship really just by um, I was there every weekend at my grandparents' place, so that's when the phone calls took place. So my mum, it was quite a shock for her because they hadn't been... Um, in a relationship for a while and she wasn't fully aware that I was talking to him on that regular basis. Uh, your, your mum your mum actually gave birth to you at a very young age, is that correct? Yeah, she'd just turned 16 when um, when I was born. Right, so so mm. fill, fill us in on, on, on how she actually met, met your dad. Do you, are you aware of how that happened? Yeah, so my mum my had quite a troubled um, teenage kind of life and um, she was living, running away a lot and living on the streets and, and then that's how she met my father um, uh, on the King's Cross scene, which was pretty pretty kind of pumping back in those days. You know, it was um, not so, not as regulated as it, is, as it is now and there was lots of drugs and alcohol and a big kind of homeless scene. Um, and, yeah, and then they kind of met um, in a video arcade um, and they were 
pretty smitten with each other. And then three months after meeting, um, she was pregnant with me. Around, so, around what time was that? What what uh, year, roughly? So that, that was in 1981. Wow, I would yeah. have been up the cross there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think, Renee, we probably bumped into your mum or your dad. Probably. <laughs> it was a, you know, it was a, a big scene there. No, then, yeah, it certainly yeah, was. Cross, yeah. So, yeah. And um and and quite um quite a lot going on there. There was a big um you know yeah gay gay movement mm-hmm. and um you know a lot of um, prostitution and yeah it was it was quite the scene. So and my parents were really into that thing. Yeah, it actually was funny enough. It was actually the the roughly the same time that my. Um all the males in my family were trawling the cross trying to find my cousin because she'd run away from home. She was 15, mm-hmm. uh, 15, 16, and um, ended up falling pregnant as well, ironically. Yeah, well, do you know, I think it was a place where people could go and run away to, and there was a bit of a camaraderie there um, between, you know, there were little gangs of people who, you know, mm. misfits uh, that weren't kind of fitting in at home or school or things like that, and they kind of found a, a band of, you know, um, supporters. Yeah, Still dangerous and yeah. <laughs> things like that, but, yeah. There certainly was uh, a lot of street kids or people, really, adults as well as kids, um, mm. living in the cross around that time. Um, I think I lived in the cross around 80 three so it was you know the cross has only really changed in the last couple of years hasn't it that's right that's right I bet it but it was a place where uh, a lot of people could find a sense of community and a sense mm. of belonging and it, especially displaced people yeah without a doubt yeah absolutely and I think you know my mother said years later when we when we would talk about that she often um, would talk about how good a friendships that she had made there in that time, even though she was living on the streets and trying to find money for the next lot of food or things like that, she often talked about the camaraderie and and the friendships there, solidarity, I guess. So would you characterise her as being a little bit on the wild side or or, um, just just someone who was uh, a bit displaced? I think she had a um, yeah. I think she obviously had a wild side. Um, she she had grown up in a Catholic boarding school and um, probably That'll just wanted it. to yeah <laughs> yeah. Enough said. Hey, <laughs> but, yeah. So I think she wanted to escape those constraints and rebel a little bit, and then went so far um, the other way uh, when she met my father. So yeah. So I take it she's around her early fifties. She is, yeah. So yeah. Around my age. <laughs> <laughs> I keep, I keep thinking, I probably, I must know her. <laughs> you probably do. <laughs> you, you might do. We won't mention any names. Uh, no no yeah. names, no pack drill, as they say. So, so as you were growing up and this sunk in, mm. did it start to have an effect on you as a person as you got older? Like, yeah, do you know, the the thing that really started to affect me was just um, this trying to keep everything a secret um, because I'd, mm. you know, been telling people at school that my dad worked at Cottage Cordial and he was a farmer and I was pretty, in my eyes, pretty much just like them, but my dad wasn't around. So once I, once I found out that he was in jail and the purpose of him telling me was because he wanted to, to vi- me to visit him. Hmm. So, um, and so I, and my grandmother started taking me for visits. So it wasn't just the knowledge of the secret, but actually then having this sort of, 
um, I was lying to people at school about who I was, um, and and that's not really natural for a child to lie. They, you know, that's truth is blurts out whether it's appropriate or not generally from kids at any given time. So it, it kind of went against the grain of really trying to be um, focused on not slipping up from this family truth. And, you know, while other kids were going off on um, the weekend to parties or whatever, I was going off to Long Bay Jail um, mm. to visit mm. my father. So, yeah, that really kind of started to weigh on me um, and I just felt like I had to have a different face when I was with other people um, at school to make sure that I didn't slip up or say anything about my dad or say anything about going to visit him or anything like that. So, yeah, it became the older I got, the more obvious that I wasn't kind of like the other kids or and neither was my dad. And that went on for most of your young life, that you were, the, you were at the jail every other weekend? Yeah, right, we... Right yeah, um, yeah, yep. <laughs> um, Every yeah, well that changed a lot when he would get moved around um, to different jails. So sometimes right. the frequency was less because he was placed out in you know different jails. The longer time he served, the less security was required. So right. um, so that kind of impacted it. Um, and then yeah, I we kind of stopped visiting my um, once my grandmother died. Um, then I I didn't speak to him for quite some time after that. Why was that, Renee? Well, I just didn't have the... I was kind of 11 and 12, so I, I didn't have access <laughs> to a phone or anything like, like kids these days. Hmm. Um, and I just had no idea even how to go about it. So, And I, I think, too, after losing um, my grandmother, who'd really kind of mothered me a lot of my life, um, I wasn't focused on that um at all anyway so tell us a little bit about your your father then okay mm. going back to the time you met your mum uh, what mm. knowing what you know uh, I, I take it you've revealed all this in your book but i don't want to you know it's up to you to <laughs> say as much as you like or as little but yep describe him for us at the time that he met my mother yes mm. well um well, I think he was a very charismatic person from all accounts, um, you know, really um, could talk the talk and all of those types of things. But there was that big scene at the cross where he was trying to make money and this was later disclosed um, that I had found out he'd been doing some untoward um, activities to make the, that money and um, I think quite involved in the drug scene and um, and, and crime. So... So at the time that they met, um, whilst he was this charismatic person, he had a lot going on on the side and was probably running, I, I wouldn't say running in the wrong crowd or, or so much as leading that crowd um, might have been the case. But, um, yeah, but she could see past that and um, I think, well, I think you always think it's all okay in the moment probably and then things went rather downhill um, and she had found out uh, the police busted in and um, arrested him one night when they were together and she just found out she was pregnant with me. So, um, yeah, life got pretty heavy for her at 15 and, and for him too uh, because, you know, he was uh, charged with, with the two murders. And the two murders came about because it was a drug deal gone bad or...? or well, it was, it was kind money. of a break and enter, break and enter gone bad. Um, right. Right. Yeah. So on, but they were yeah 
both times. Um, so it's kind of hard to to imagine that going that bad two times. Um, but yeah, that's that is the that's the story. Oh, so it was yep. two separate occasions. Well, yes, but that that I do write a lot about that in the book because I didn't know that until much later again. Yeah. So when you so when you popped into the picture of his life and you met him for the first time, what was your impression of your father? Yeah, well, I had known him obviously when I was um, kind of that younger. Um, I guess I've been told I'd been taken to see him other times, but um, that first time for me, once I knew that he, um, you know, I'd found out that he was in jail for murder, and I remember. Uh, so vividly, and I write about it um, in the in the book about going and visiting Long Bay Jail um, and meeting him for the first time in in that context, um, and the first time that I can remember, and it was just so overwhelming. This big, um, you know, big maximum security jail, and mm. like nothing I'd ever seen before, and. Um, it's it's probably it's probably a bit strange, but when I write about that in the book, it 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 can the start of it's quite funny. Well, I think it's quite funny because my grandmother had dressed me up to the nines in all of this you know wonderful outfit and everything to go and impress my father, and it was just I was so out of context in this big fluffy pink outfit that she'd put me in dresses and coats and things and um, into this really you know, dark, dingy jail with um, these maximum security guards and being patted down before we went in and all of that type of thing. So it was really um, intimidating. And I think that was really when the, the gravity of the whole situation hit me was when I was in the jail and and to meeting him and him wanting to be really affectionate with me and, and um, cuddle me and things like that. And and I just felt out of my depth. Um Hmm. And, and, and rightly so. Cause Understandably <laughs> so. Yeah. It's sort of uh, it's sort of ironic that your grandmother dressed you up to impress him. Mm, really, yeah, it should it have been the other way around, shouldn't it? Well, yeah, I don't know that he had access to many outfits in there to, to impress me. <laughs> it was just me, the prison but, um, greens, I take it. Yeah, exactly. Mm, yeah, yeah, so, and that was, yeah, it was really... Not exactly um, a fashion statement. No, no. Um, and yeah, so it was it was a, a pretty crazy time. And I remember just really looking around and seeing all the guards with their guns and things like that, and just thinking, this isn't the dad that I um, that my friends have or that I that I I want. <laughs> Where? How did it did it affect your grandmother? Like for a, the whole rest of her life after that. I mean, was how how did she deal with all of this going on, dealing, you know, so, looking after you and and you know having her son in prison. So interestingly, um, it 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 wasn't her son. He was um, she's my she's my mum's mum. So she just had this um, odd kind of loyalty to him um, from their relationship. I'm not, I'm not sure why, um, but yeah, it, it wasn't. Um, it wasn't her son, so his family didn't really have anything to do with him. And my my nan kind of um, adopted him a bit as her own, and that that caused a, a great wedge between my mother and her, um, because my mother felt that um, she had no place being loyal to loyal to him after everything he put her through. So it was a very kind of complicated 
um, dynamic between mm. those three. It's very, yeah. sh- very strange dynamic, if you don't mind me saying. Uh, really be, strange, but, but yeah. But maybe, maybe she's one of those types that um, every family has. She's the mother hen and likes to pull everyone in uh, and keep them close. Was she that yeah. type of person? Yeah, it's um, an interesting... It, it is an interesting dynamic because I just... Um, you don't know um, really why she was drawn to him in that way, um, but yeah, it's um, yeah, I, it's something that I haven't realised is so odd until I'm an adult myself. And why did she? Why did she have such a fascination with him? I'm not sure. So yeah, but um, yeah, something that yeah, like I said, I often look back at more as an adult and think that was really strange. Mm. Now there's there's more to this than 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 uh, than you just explained because in your uh, bio you you uh, you make comment that your your life uh, was a roller coaster of family secrets. You now mm. you've 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 touched on the murder, but uh, you know there's sexual assault, domestic violence. There's there's a lot more that went on that um, that uh, people should be aware of. Is that correct? Yeah, well, but those things probably came later in life um, rather than not being directly um, related. But I think it set me up um, on that sort of course of secret keeping um, because I'd been so schooled in it from such a young age. So um, those those issues came to me at a a much later time um, of my life. And... um, Really, not until I was out on my own and outside of the the family off at university, those issues started coming into play, and um, yeah, things that I had often. Well, so yeah. Sorry to sorry to interrupt there. So so it was uh, so you really you've had a double whammy of of this in your life. You know, it's like you you get over or you come to terms with your father, and then you leave home, go to university, and bingo, it starts to happen all again, more trauma. Yeah, it kind of did. I had kind of thought I would. I was off to, you know, study law and make my um, own way in life and you know, full of those kind of things because I was pretty bloody determined to not let parents' life impact mine. And, um, and then I think that kind of stubbornness set me up really in um, an achieve-at-all-cost type of attitude. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and, and then things did spiral out of control. I, I think, right, I was in charge of my own life with no um, adults around for six months and then it was all unraveled. Um, and it was time to start clawing it back after that. But, um, yeah, a lot has been crammed in. So the, the book starts essentially when I'm six and, and finishes when I'm about 24. Now, Renee, um, you know, I mean, I, I don't know, uh, were, you, were you comfortable uh, writing this book? I mean, what was the purpose of writing this book? Was it a just something you needed to get off your chest or uh, or a way of putting closure to, to what happened in the past? I think I've always loved to write things down um, and make sense of things that way. So initially, and I've kind of always, um, yeah, used that as an outlet. But um, I think I started to write the book and initially it wasn't, and I didn't know that it was necessarily going to be published because it's so... 
um, rare that that you know that you you finish a book and and it, and it will be picked up and published. Um, so I initially started writing it for myself. Um, just to make sense of everything that I... And get my story kind of out on the page because I find that, you know, once it's out of your head and on the page, it's, it, you know, it's um, there's clarity around it and, um, and sometimes closure. So um, that was kind of the motivation. And also because, I guess, it is quite a sensationalised story um, and, you know, if I ever tell people about my story prior to writing the book, they'd be like... Oh my God! Really? Is that your life? It just—it is—it's a bit crazy. Um, an obsession writing the book. Once I started, I just couldn't um, stop. So, but then at the same time, um, I am a social worker uh, as my profession. So, a lot of the time, I can see when people share stories of really difficult things. Um, it can sometimes help other people. So, and I have found that um, just through writing the book and a lot of the messages that I've received from people um, have, have, have been like that. So, so there's, that, um, there's that element to it as well. But, yeah, it wasn't always easy, easy going, um, getting through some of those chapters and reliving all those I moments. I didn't think it, could, it would have been. I, I, I just think it's an amazing story. So uh, just, again, the title of the book is The House of Lies, and um, we would urge everyone to get, uh, get out there and get a copy of it. Um, it's available in Kindle format as well, I take it? Sure is, yep. Fantastic. So, but we'll Renee, moving for, I guess moving forward, you went to university, you finished university, and I notice in your bio you talk about travel a lot, and you've travelled a lot, like looking at, I think it says 50 countries you've been to? Yeah, so it was kind of a you goal to go moving. to 50 countries by 30. Well, by the time I turned 30, it was one of my goals, so... Yeah, so yeah, and that that was a that was a, an amazing experience. We took two years off and didn't didn't work and um, went travelling and um, and yeah, just kind of had an amazing time. And I think that was really well part of where the book kind of I had so much time to think on long, um, you know, odd bus journeys around um, in far flung places that I could really start thinking and processing a lot of the stuff that I wanted to write about. So it kind of, those two really go hand in hand, I think, for me, the, the, the space to think about all those things and then come back and, and write. So it made you feel free, I take it? Some sort free, of freedom? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, completely free. No um, worries about, you know, meeting people, just, you know, and also just seeing so many things um, where people, you can see a lot of suffering and, and things um, part of the time that we were away, we worked um, at a, an IDP camp in Kenya and the resilience of the people um, and just the things that they had overcome helped me put a lot of my own life into perspective as well and um, just, yeah, just that's always a, an element as well. So I think it's the best education to go travelling and, you know, see the wider wider world. And I just I felt so privileged the whole time I was away doing those things. Um, I couldn't believe it was me with all of this kind of, you know, deep, dark past and secrets that was there seeing these amazing things and doing these amazing things. So I had this, you know, huge sense of passion and adventure and, you know, just gratitude the whole, the whole time I was away, I think. 
from that experience in Africa, what did mm. you learn most from the African people that you were with? <laughs> um, odd, odd things, I think. Um, I think just the well resilience I learned, um, and I learned, um, and I keep learning this even in my current job is never to try and. Um, problem solve for people because the solutions that you come up with are very different to what they think they need and, and want and um, never to kind of make those assumptions that, that, you know, you know better than the people themselves. So I think there's a really um, big misconception about people sometimes who are suffering in, in Africa. Um, and look, I can speak about the experience in the IDP camp and all super well... Um, you know, driven people who are so smart can speak multiple languages and dialects of their, you know, native tongues have such a passion and drive to do well for their families and and themselves. And it's, you know, this circumstance that prevents them often from, from doing so. But um, just incredible people and passion for life and um, so much can be learnt from them. So we, we were just learning all the all the time and and they they were inspiring and not just the people in, in Kenya but all over Africa and India and it, people everywhere I met, I met amazing people who had amazing stories. And now a word from our sponsors. This is about the 400th take, listeners. <laughs> this is our uh, this is our um, for a male sponsor, Mungrel Joe's. Yes, Mungrel Joe's. So, hey, Brett, what keeps you going? I'm not sure what you're implying. I don't like where your mind's going with this one, Brett. But uh, without getting personal, there are many times I need a hit, and not from a bus. What keeps me going is a steaming hot cup of coffee, and not just any coffee. Ah, you must be talking about Mungrel Joe's. Yeah, our proud sponsor. Yes, that deep, rich, tasty and fulfilling coffee that perks you up, puts lead in your pencil, makes you glisten and puts hairs on your chest. But what does it do for men? Boom, boom. <laughs> it brings out the mongrel in you. <laughs> God, seriously, folks. Seriously, folks. Mungrel Joe's. That's my line. No, That's your line. <laughs> Mungrel Joe's is the best taste experience ever it's 100 percent australian and not only is it a performance coffee it's strong and smooth like me of course george <laughs> it's the greatest coffee on earth the world's greatest coffee is it really <laughs> <laughs> yes it is jump online at mongreljoes.com.au and give it a shot excuse the pun no 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 you didn't have to say that well it's you printed it on the page you're george. on you're on fire brent I am on. We fire. could have scratched that out. And just for our listeners to put put it put in a discount code, float your boat, and you will get a special discount on your first order. Remember that it's float your boat. One word. If you love coffee, you should try Mungrel Joe's. I'm telling you, folks. Aside from this great script that George wrote, <laughs> and it was so obvious you were reading it. <laughs> yes, George, it was. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> listeners, Mongrel Joe's, it's, it's the best. How effective do you think um, the, the programs in, in Africa have been uh, given what you saw, hmm. 
It's that's a challenging one, I think, um, because you go over a lot of people go over, and um, myself included, mm. thinking that you're going to make this change huge impact and change the world exactly. Um, but when you get there, you realise it's a really um, slow process, and there are a lot of systems in place and um, things that need to happen in order for you to get things done. For example, just you know, um, even just. You know, you have to pay bribes sometimes to go down the road um, to get past a certain checkpoint or things like that. So everything's really slow going, and um, and you might have some really great ideas about you know sustainable living or um, setting up systems that can generate an income, but that they don't necessarily come into play because once you're there and on the ground, um, you see that there are a lot more roadblocks um, yeah. than you probably can anticipate from your nice cushy lounge room oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I remember I, I remember <laughs> my first uh, the first thought that came to mind when I noticed how things worked in Kenya I uh, it was just a, a saying I'd heard somewhere, welcome to Africa. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah, and that's a way to explain away a lot of things that don't go the way you expect them to. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll, we'll continue that in a minute, but, you know, you know I, must say, I must say that when I read your profile, right, mm. the first half was about your past and, and the second half was about what you're doing now. Mm. And and the like the, the immediate thought I had was it it figures like yeah. did you ever think did you ever think that what you went through as a child has kind of motivated you to get into the areas that you that you worked in in your professional life now I I understand that, but I was really focused. I was so focused on being a lawyer when I was younger that I could think of nothing else. So when I got into study law, I was like, "That's it! I've made it. This is my this is my calling." Hmm. Um, even though, um, uh, you know, I'm far too nosy and personable to be a lawyer. I think. Uh, <laughs> you sound um, like, yeah. You sound like a really nice person. How could you? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse yeah, me, all those things didn't work out. Yeah. yeah. Excuse me, all those lovely lawyers out there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah. So, but now, obviously, I think you know. I do think there's a reason why a lot of people who have had really, you know, big stumbling blocks in their life or challenging situations often go to the humanities um, as as professionals, and it's because they think that experience can drive you, especially if you've come through the other side, to, you know, be passionate about pulling others through or showing others that, you know, you can you can get through it if, you know, it's possible. Because sometimes it doesn't feel like it is possible when you're in those times. Right. And mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, so I think I think all of those, those things and, you know, um, have served me to be good at my job now, um, which is, you know, which is great. It's it's good to be able to say, I never, ever say I wish those things didn't happen to me because I think they serve a purpose. But it's also, I think, really important to note that only someone on the other side of that can say that, that you know, in the, in the midst of all the turmoil and suffering and particularly the, you know, the sexual assault and the violent relationship, um, you know, it, it, there's no way in the midst of that I would have been able to, to think that this is, you know, this is all for a reason or that I'll be able to use this for good someday. But, um, but you can get to a place after. Um, 
where you can use it for good, I well, think. Also slightly ironic that you married a, a comedian, I think. Yeah. <laughs> as a lawyer, <laughs> as a lawyer yes. He, I'm sure he's got a lot of lawyer jokes. Sure. <laughs> no, he has a lot of Renee jokes. <laughs> um, and I think, look, that is something that I think is is lovely because um, that sort of that side of that relationship is, you know, I've learnt a lot to laugh at myself. Um, and as as has a lot of other people um, while he's up on stage. Um, but, yeah, it's that's nice to be able to get to that um, point and not take yourself so seriously um, all the time. So, yeah. So, so how would you describe yourself? I would now, say I guess. now, oh, I think um, never sitting still, always got something on the go, and I just I feel that it's my duty to kind of live my life to, to its fullest because I had so many, um, you know, dark years there. For Well, not so many, but, but they were so condensed and so much to kind of live on that end of the scale mm-hmm. that I almost feel like it's a bit of a, a seesaw. So, um, and now I'm at the, the high side. <laughs> so I feel like there's this responsibility to always be on the go and, and getting as much out of life as I, I can. And, you know, I've got a, um, a really young family. I've got three little boys and a, a great husband. And we live in this, you know, big wide desert um, with lots of great things to explore. So that's, um, I would say, I'd, I would describe myself as passionate. So whatever I'm doing, I throw myself into it, hundred percent. You've hit your happy happy spot, really. I think so, and I I think I just the little stuff doesn't worry me because I've had the big stuff mm. happen. So um, so yeah, so you know, and I just enjoy being in this space where. Um, I think it's funny, I suppose I take it uh, as a big compliment when people meet me and then they align the book with me because they're like, that person is so different to who you are now um, because mm. I feel like it just resembles the that journey from that six-year-old to this 35-year-old um, and, and how far I've come. I'm sure that everybody out there is wondering, <laughs> where is your father now? You know, it's really interesting. Um, and I've never um, kept in touch with him or, or um, known what's happening um, with him. However, just recently, I did receive a message from him, and um, and I don't know where he is or what he's doing with life um, as such. But I had a message from him just to say that he had um, heard about the book and that he was uh, proud of me and happy that I was living a good life and um, there's an exclusive for you uh, <laughs> and um, and yeah that just um, it really meant a lot to me. Renee as far as you know is he out or he's still in prison? Yeah no so I write about um, he is out he's he he was out a long time ago right. um, I do write about that in <clears throat> in the book just um, uh, about his release um, when I was a, about 16 so that was right. another big moment, yeah, um, for me back then. But yeah, so I, and I, I have no idea about what's what's been happening for him um, since then, really, except for this big this, this this message that I had just received. So, which is nice. That's nice. Look, you know, in the, in, the, in the preamble, I, I asked Brett uh, whether he thought that circumstances make the person or or people can make 
their own circumstances and clearly for you it's the latter mm. um, and you're right it has to be tempered with the fact that uh, those who get through the other end are the ones who are magnanimous enough to say that kind of th that kind of stuff but you know yeah. a lot of people do fall by the wayside and never recover and never yeah. seen again um, I think your your journey's been amazing, but more amazing than that is how you forged a, um, such a positive impact on on your community and and what you do in your life. It's it's a beautiful thing, and I and I certainly is. And I I have to say that's a it's a great hearing you share your story. So um, look, Renee, it's been absolutely sensational having you on, and thank you so much for sharing your story you. and. Um, for the listeners out there, I think, is it, is it true that you said that you'd send a couple of books that we can give away to our listeners? Yes, you should have them there today. Okay. If not, yeah, Great. it All right. will be existing next we'll, week. We'll, yeah. we'll put that on the preamble. No. Well, what would be the, what would be the, uh, the criteria for, for giving the, the books away? What, uh, what, what, what we? are we going to ask them? To, to give us their best story? Or? Maybe, you should do, maybe you should do something about secrets. Because it's um, uh, it pretty now likely, so we should do what's, now the, what's the biggest keep? What's the biggest secret you've ever kept? And whoever has the biggest one should um, should win the book. Okay, listeners. Yeah. So you, you've you've heard it from Renee. That's wow, her condition. That's so you need to email us um, at info at float your boat. That's f l o a t y r b o a t dot com, and the best secret wins. We've got a couple of copies, so so there you go. So, Renee, uh, George is pointing... No, I'm just pointing at one more thing that we normally ask our guests, and, and you know, you're, I'm putting you on the spot, but uh, your most embarrassing story, apart from your dad finding out your dad was a murderer. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't so embarrassing. Yeah, nah, that's nothing. <laughs> okay, I do actually have. I, I get. I, I get um, pulled up on this one a lot by my husband, and it's pretty amusing. I don't know if everybody knows this. We were kind of on this. Um, we were on a train traveling to Slovenia, and we met this couple. And the guy said, "You know, I work for." I, I work for um, Rio and blah, blah, blah. He'd already said he was an electrician. Hmm. And I was like, for hours on the train thinking, why would Rio underwear need an electrician? <laughs> and I, like, I, there wasn't a moment for me to jump in and ask the question. But as soon as we got off the train, I said to John, why would Rio underwear need a, an electrician? And he was like, Rio Tinto, you idiot. <laughs> I was like, oh, <laughs> that was pretty embarrassing. <laughs> like, for for yeah. such a smart lady, that's yeah. a bit of a faux pas. <laughs> it was, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm pretty prone to them, so I've got a few of those stories. <laughs> but oh, that well one done. Yeah. Well done. Look, Renee, that, that's phenomenal. That's phenomenal. Thank you. So be, before we go, your, the song you chose, I thought, was absolutely 100% spot on. And it, it, to me, it probably describes a big part of your life. Um, mm. And Eminem is one of my favourites as well. Do you want to tell us what the song is and why you love it so much? 
Mm. I chose Lose Yourself by Eminem because I'm a, a closet Eminem fan mm-hmm. and I always love to pretend that I'm that girl growing up in the Bronx. Yeah. When I go running, I, I listen to this on repeat and um, you I, love the bling. Ra- I love to wrap it out, yeah, yeah. essentially. So, <laughs> like, yo, um, yo, Renee, yeah. yo, Renee. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so I chose that song and I think it's got that message you know of being that un- underdog and um, coming out on top so that kind of ties in as well uh, look That's Renee awesome <laughs> Renee I, I, I've got to say it's been an absolute ple- pleasure we could have had you on for another couple of hours I'm sure lots, oh, lots next of stories time I have to write another book you yes. should write another book <laughs> write another book and we'll get you back on but once again thank, thanks so much for taking the time um, I know you're busy being having three Three, three boys, my Especially God. Especially three boys. And, and an idiot yeah. for a husband that's a comedian. <laughs> <laughs> One day Brett will tell you about his background. He's fairly similar. You don't, you don't want to hear my funny stories. I do. I oh, do. You'll have to listen to the podcast because they'll be coming up pretty soon. I've had, I've, my, just quickly, my father was, I grew up, my father was in um, showbiz, but he was a clown predominantly. So you can imagine as a teenage boy. <laughs> not I, just I, any clown, Brett. Not just so any. You have to spell it out. Uh, he was Ronald McDonald. Okay. <gasps> wow. <laughs> you poor thing as a child. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So you exactly. Your father was a murderer. My father was a freaking clown. Well, well twenty thousand dollars of, per, of personal <laughs> therapy has helped him out. <laughs> thank, thank you, Renee. Um, no take, take care and, and all the best in the future, huh? Thank you, Renee. Guys, take thank care. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye bye. 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 Opportunity sees everything you ever wanted. One moment that you capture, just let it slip. Yo, his palms are sweaty, knees weak, arms are heavy. There's vomit on his sweater already. Mom's spaghetti, he's nervous, but on the surface, he looks calm and ready to drop palms. But he keeps on forgetting what he wrote down. The whole crowd goes so loud, he opens his mouth, but the words won't come out. He's choking how? Everybody's choking now. The clock's run out. Time's up. Over. Plow. Snap back to reality. Oh, there goes gravity. Oh, there goes rabbit. He choke. He's so mad, but he won't give up daddies. He know he won't have it. He knows his whole back to these ropes. It don't matter. He's dope. He knows that, but he's pro. He's so stagnant. He knows when he goes back to this mobile home. That's when it's back to the lab again, yo. This old rhapsody better go capture this moment and hope it don't do it. Make me king as we move toward a new world order, a normal life. 
is boring. The superstardom's close to postmortem. It only grows harder. Homie grows hotter. He blows. It's all over. These d- is all on him. Coast to coast shows. He's known as the globe trotter. Lonely roads. God only knows he's grown farther from home. He's no father. He goes home and barely knows his own daughter. But hold your nose, cause here goes the cold water. He goes, don't want him no more. He's cold product. They moved on to the next smoke who flows. He knows dove and sold nada. So the soul popper is told it unfolds. I suppose it's old partner, but the beat goes on. Da 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 Feet fit. 